0: I'd like to start this evening's talk by reading you a poem that some of you will be familiar with called A Bend in the Road. It's by Fernanda Pessoa from a collection of poetry called, quite modestly, A Little Larger Than the Entire Universe. Um, and I want to root this evening's talk in this poem to some degree. Beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well, and there may be a chateau, and there may just be more road. I don't know and don't ask. As long as I'm on the road that's before the bend, I only look at the road before the bend. Because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would do me no good to look anywhere else, or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention only to where we are, there's enough beauty in simply being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. That for them is the road. If we're to arrive there, when we arrive there, we'll know. For now we know only that we're not there. Here there's just the road before the bend, and before the bend there's a road without any bend." I find in many ways this poem is quite a beautiful description of what it means to be here, what it means to be present, what it means to this wholehearted sense of embodying and embodying that sense of presence. It's about not leaning back with regret into the past, into what's gone by, It's about not leaning forward with anticipation or hope or longing for the future. It's what the Buddha did describe as being one fortunate attachment. But this poem also has a qualitative sense to it. It's a poem that describes a a sort of easeful resting in not knowing, not knowing what the next moment will bring, not knowing how the road is going to unfold. And that po- the poem describes also, I think, this quality of, of wakefulness, of awareness that illuminates, actually, and really awakens the world, both inwardly and outwardly. And it is that quality of wakefulness that allows us to be touched deeply by the sorrows, difficulties of the world, but also by the beauties of the moment that really gladden our hearts. We know this in our own experience. We know it's possible to move through this life so entangled in our preoccupations, our obsessions, that there's little that touches us, either the sorrows or the joys. We also know what a difference it makes to bring into this moment that sense of wakefulness and how the world seems to come alive through that wakefulness. I read this poem also as having something to do with the Buddha's teaching of being free from debt. Being free from debt. And the Buddha used this metaphor quite a lot, that if you've ever had the experience of being financially in debt. You know how it weighs upon you, how you worry, how you're anxious, how you're unsettled, how you can't rest. And then he invited people to imagine what it would be like to be free of that debt and the sense of relief that would come with that, the sense of freedom that would come with that. And when the the Buddha talks about being free from indebtedness, he's not speaking about financial debt so much as he is speaking about emotional and psychological indebtedness. You know, I think sometimes if we not want to know what we're in debt to, we just need to really kind of trace the things we obsess about, the things that feel unfinished, the things that we can't let be the things that we ruminate about, how our attention returns over and over and over again to to walk in the same cycles of repetition. And then we could also imagine the relief and the freedom that we would feel if we no longer had that indebtedness. And much of this pathway of waking up is actually learning to be free from debt. I need to be free from debt. It's about not obsessing, not pre- being preoccupied with past and future so that it feels no longer weighty, no longer we feel no longer burdened by what has gone by or what is yet to come. From another perspective, I think this poem can sound a little bit simplistic, you know, as if being mindfully present is somehow a cure for all of our afflictions and all of the afflictions in the world. And we know that this is not so. In reality, most of us, our journeys have been long and winding roads, filled with joys, filled with sorrows, filled with aspirations, filled with disappointments. We each one of us here have our personal story and yet our stories are so interwoven aren't they with with all of the people who have touched our lives who've touched our hearts who've touched our minds in some way and the way that we have touched the the world our stories are so interwoven both through the painful and through the lovely with the stories of so many You only need to sit a little bit in meditation to become aware of how much time we spend living in our stories and our narratives about who we are, about who others are, about what the world is. It is like we're, we're constant authors you know, creating our manuscripts. You know. Some of them... In touch with how things are, and some of them simply quite fabricated, which we don't realize until the end. And we look back and we think, what was that all about? Hmm? What we do see is that our story is a self maker, it creates a sense of who we are, just as our story is an other maker. And our story, our narrative is really powerful because our narrative shapes our present. Our narrative shapes our choices, how we act, how we speak, how we view the world. The story we carry and live in shapes our sense of possibility and our sense of limitation. Our narrative really shapes how we stand, on the road we are on just now. But we acknowledge the way that our story is interwoven with the stories of others, that none of us lives in a bubble, none of us is isolated, and in every moment of our lives we are both touching the world and we're being touched by the world. It's that wonderful quote that says, All all that we are now is a result of all that we were. And all that we will be, will be a result of all that we are now. I think we begin to appreciate how much and how many ways we're actually children of the conditions of our lives. Our families, our social structures, our education, our cultures... I think sometimes it's useful to pause for a moment and, you know, to ask of ourselves, you know, why do I think the way that I do? Interesting. Why do I think the way that I do? Why do I act the way that I do? Why do I hold the views that I can cling to so powerfully? And we we see... You know, in reality, from the moment of our birth, how our sense of self has been shaped not only by our own life experience but by the endless stream of messages and input from others that we have all absorbed, how our sense of self has been shaped by how others see us and how others treat us, and in reality how people see us is how they treat us. The Buddha deeply emphasized the need to be so wakefully present in inwardly and outwardly in this moment. And not because there's something intrinsically valuable about the present moment. It's become such a sort of cliched phrase, isn't it? As if the present moment is some suspended space in time, you know, eternal. Now there's nothing intrinsically valuable about the present moment, but it is valuable being present because of its potential to be a turning point. It is our capacity to stand on the road that we're on just now, that allows it to be uh, almost an embarkation point on a journey of, of really quite profound transformation. It's a place, standing in this present moment on the road we're on, It's a place where we can begin to explore what it means to be no longer bound by the past, and no longer hostage to the world of conditions. It's by standing wakefully on the road we're on right now that we can begin to break the patterns of repetition, the psychological, the emotional habits and patterns that really lead us to keep reanimating and reliving the past. Wherever we are, whatever we do, we do bring with us the entirety of our lives. And the real question we ask of ourselves is, how much are we bound by that, and how much are we free? There's a wonderful quote in the Dhammapada where the Buddha says, it's not difficult to engage in that which undermines our well-being. It is far more difficult to cultivate and to embody that which nourishes our our well-being. It's interesting that the nature of habit is that it asks to be repeated. it's the nature of habit. It asks to be repeated. And whatever we practice and whatever we repeat, we actually get better at. And we deepen in it. It doesn't take much effort, really, does it, to relapse into default modes of, of doubt or fear or, or aversion. You, know, you don't really have to work it up, do you? <laughs> we rarely have to work, or really work, at being agitated or reactive. And much of this path that we're on now is really concerned with our developing our capacity to emerge from the condition of chronic relapse. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing, learning how to emerge <coughs> from the condition of chronic relapse. To find the ways to walk new pathways of, of respect, of dignity. And it does really take considerably more effort to respond to injustice and harm and ignorance with courage and determination and compassion rather than with fear and rage. It really does take so much more effort, I find, to travel our lives with kindness and integrity and wakefulness and balance rather than with heedlessness and forgetfulness and avoidance. Which is why this evening I would like to talk about karma or kama. I'm sure we're all familiar with this word karma. It's got kind of naturalized into our culture in strange ways. There's perfumes called karma and. Yeah, it's got naturalized, hasn't it? But I think it is one of the most misunderstood and misused words from the Buddhist teaching. That karma is often heard as a kind of fatalism, as a kind of determinism. Um, Something terrible happens to you, and we're told or we tell ourselves, oh, it's just my karma, you know. Something terrible happens to somebody else, never mind, it's just your karma. At times, uh, uh, karma is heard as a kind of retribution, you know, a form of punishment. You somehow deserve this terrible thing that's happened to you. And for centuries in parts of Asia, it was a kind of uh, way of, it was a kind of social construct you know. Karma was translated as being duty. And yet, as being part of a social construct, it was also part of actually social control. Because this is what maintained class, it maintained caste, it maintained hierarchies. It's your karma to be a toilet cleaner, or a potter, or a butcher, or a priest and to to carry out that karma you had duties to undertake certain tasks to occupy yourself with that maintained a particular position in social hierarchies in parts of asia you know i was certainly told so i'm not making this up that it was your karma to be born a woman and in in that karma of being born a woman it meant you know you didn't have really the right karma to be awake, but you had plenty of karma to earn merit by serving the monks. <laughs> so that at some point you got a better birth and then maybe you could have a, you know, a different karma. I think we, we, we kind of use this differently in our own cultures. You know, I, I think sometimes people are told to know their place, you know, not to think above themselves you know, to know where you belong, to know who you are. Um, and, and this, you know, the benefits is that it maintains hierarchies, but also it rests upon a very faulty understanding of karma. There's this wonderful s- sutta uh, where these students go to the Buddha and they say to the Buddha, Some teachers say that everything we experience, pleasant or unpleasant, is because of past deeds. Is this true? So, okay, some people say that everything we experience, pleasant or painful, is because of past deeds. Is this true? The Buddha was very clear on this. He said, no, it's not true. We could finish the discussion there, couldn't we? (laughs) He said, some of what you experience is simply the result of phlegm. (laughs) Some of what you experience is simply the result of bile. Some of what you experience is simply the result of internal and external winds. (laughs) Of change of seasons. Of bodily humors. I'm not quite sure what bodily humors are, but anyway, some of what you experience is because of bodily humors. Um, some of what you experience is because of neglect of body or from harsh treatment. And some of what you experience is by choices you have made. So you notice this is eighth on the list. <laughs> in phlegm comes before <laughs> choices you have made. So, the Buddha was pretty clear about this not being some sort of linear process, in you know, that somehow explains where we are now. And I think today, you know, we, we find ourselves living in the midst of very difficult circumstances often that we can't always explain. And it, it's so simplistic to tell ourselves it's just karma as, as a kind of resignation. To put it really simply from the discourses, karma means simply to act. That's what it means, to act. This is what karma is. It is to act. And we are always engaged in actions. Actions of body, actions of speech, actions of mind. Even to choose not to act or not to speak is action and still karma. Okay? Now, we live in a world where we are imprinted by the acts of others, the acts of their body, speech, and mind, that also leave an imprint upon us and the world around us. Many of the imprints of our acts we cannot foresee. Others we can. Ruth Dennison, a much-loved teacher of the past here at IMS, she would say, you know, if you plant an apple seed, you don't get a mango tree helpful. (laughs) The imprints or the consequences of our actions are not karma. The imprints of the consequences of our actions are called pala or vipaka, literally fruit or consequences. Now, to me, it's very interesting that both the word karma, to act, and the word karuna, compassion, have their roots in the same word, kriya, which means acting. Now, the Buddha took the word karma, the understanding of karma, and defined it not as fatalism or determinism, both of which are dissociative, but he highlighted karma actually as responsibility and contribution, rather than retribution. Now, right now, each of us in this room is engaged in karma. We are acting. We are thinking. In another moment, we're speaking. We may move. We may make choices about what we do with our body and mind. So karma here is something very dynamic. It is something very fluid. It's a present moment responsiveness. In many ways, karma is life. Now, if we wish the road in front of us not simply to be a rerun of the bends behind us, then we're asked to be aware of the ground we stand on right now. Because karma, or acting, um, does not arise from a vacuum. We ask ourselves, what is moving our acts? What is moving our speech? What is moving our thoughts? What is moving our choices? You know, do I sit or not? Do I walk or choose not to walk? Do I go for the second plate of food or not? Do I choose whether to speak or not? Do I go on retreat or do I go to the Bahamas? (laughs) Is it just an accident that we get lost in patterns of fantasy or obsession or judgment. Our speech and our thoughts and our actions are always being shaped. So this is not about good karma or bad karma. It's not about having a storehouse of karma that somehow we need to work out. It is about how we are right now. There's a story about the Buddha coming across a fellow in a forest standing on one leg. And the Buddha asks the fellow, he says, "What are you doing?" And the man says, "I'm working out my karma." and the Buddha says, "Well, you know how much have you got rid of?" And the guy answers, he says, "I don't know." And, and the Buddha says, "Well, how much have you got left to go and And the man answers, "I don't know." And, and the Buddha says, well, how are you going to know when you're done? And the man says, I don't know. And, and it's one of those you know, teaching stories where the Buddha immediately goes into his, you know, you foolish person type thing, you know. <laughs> um, and the man is immediately enlightened. <laughs> now, if only this were true. <laughs> now, it's interesting that there are thoughts, words, and acts Whose fruit seems to be almost immediately apparent. Now you take the second plate of food, and maybe you have an afternoon of sloth and torpor, and you know <laughs> it's not just bad karma. <laughs> you know, or or you have an hour beating yourself up for overindulgence, and you know it's not just bad karma, right? Hey? You, some, have you ever had those moments where you, you speak quite harshly and you immediately feel the ripples of regret, you know, and there's a clear linkage between the fruit and the action, you know, or we react in ways that we wish that we hadn't and we immediately feel that sense of, of kind of wholesome shame and we know there's a, there, there's a relationship between the fruits or the consequences and the actions, but many of the outcomes of our acts and our speech and our thought are not that visible. Doesn't mean that they have no outcomes, but reveals the way that our thoughts and words and acts launch us into a world of conditions, the thoughts and the words and the acts of others that are not of our making and that we don't control. We enter in a world of our of relationship, our societies, our cultures, who are also speaking, thinking, and acting. And there are no certainties about the outcomes of our acts. You might give money to someone who asks you for it, and you don't know how it will be used. You can have really good intentions and really bad outcomes. Um. There's nothing linear about karma. You know, this is not how I was originally taught about karma. It was in a very linear way. You know, it says, you know, if you, if you lie, you're going to be reborn with bad breath. You know? And, <laughs> you know, and you think about all the people in our world with bad breath, and you kind of like, God, are they all liars, you know? It, it, it's, not, it's nothing like that. Good intentions land in a world of conditions, are not immediately applauded or rewarded. You think about Mahatma Gandhi, who's, you know, protested British colonialism, and despite his teachings of nonviolence, violence was unleashed so severely after the partition of India. You think about Martin Luther King, Jr., who decried racism and racist societies and also preached nonviolence and untold violence and cruelty was unleashed, not because there was anything in his thoughts, words, or acts that were amiss, but because they landed in a world of conditions that he could not control, where there were acts, thoughts, and speech in opposition. Every moment we stand on a road, the bends behind us, we know. the road in front of us is really quite uncertain. And we stand on the road in the present with the imprint of the road in the past, of the road in the past, so deeply embedded, the entirety of our life experience somehow embedded in our bones, and often shaping how we respond to the present. It's a wonderful quote again from the Buddha. He says, The thought manifests as a word, the word manifests as a deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. Habit is powerful, and so too is memory. The injury, mem- our memories of injury, our memories of pain, whose repetition we so seek to avoid. But we also stand on our road in the present with aspiration, with the longings to be free from distress, to be awake and embodied human beings. We stand in our own values of compassion and respect, of dignity, of ethics, of freedom. We stand with the aspirations to be no longer bound to the repetitive habits that don't serve us well. And yet, isn't it just so hard to find a way to be free of those psychological and emotional habits? how often we we find ourselves in habitual ways of acting and speaking and thinking that in the past may well have brought safety and satisfaction. And we find the habits persisting even when they no longer bring safety or satisfaction in the present. At some point in our lives, it might have been helpful to dissociate you know ch- children in abusive situations, you know people post trauma and post often post intense surgery. it serves them well to dissociate you know it's quite it's, it's a survival mechanism of protection um and yet we we may you know it might have been helpful to to build narratives or it might have been helpful at times in our lives to have certain defenses up, but our lives change. Our lives change, and yet still we find ourselves repeating the habits, even as they bring distress and disconnection. We find that sometimes we, we just are what we repeatedly do, or that we become what we repeatedly do. And in that sense, our past becomes our present, and our present shapes our future. And sometimes I think, people tell me they can feel quite helpless. But I think that's the question we need to hold most deeply in this path of awakening. Really, how true is that helplessness? How true is it that it's not possible to change? How true is it that it's not possible to leave habit behind? How true is it that it it's not possible to be free? I think these are the questions we, we are asked to hold. How, to, you know, mindfulness, our capacity for awareness, I think, does bring this very unique gift that, you know, you discover here that you can choose where and how you establish your attention. You can do that right now. You know, you can choose to listen or you can choose to, to, to notice what's going on in your knee. You know, you can choose to be present, you know, rather than to be lost in preoccupation or obsession. And more and more, I think we learn to really value the gift and the freedom that comes with that capacity to choose about where we're going to make the home of our mind. There's a wonderful Chinese saying that says, You can't stop the birds of the air from flying over your head but you need not let them rest in your hair. (laughs) It's great, isn't it? You need not let them nest in your hair. It's the kind of choices we have, you know. The thoughts, the habits, the reactions, you know, the memories, the images, they arise, of course, they fly over our heads, they fly through our bodies. You don't have to let them nest in your hair. This is what the gift that awareness actually really brings to us. But to choose wisely really I think takes considerable commitment. A really a really a real commitment to the values we hold most deeply, a real commitment to aspirations, a real commitment to confidence in ourselves. And the dedication to renewing intentions, the intentions that serve us well. You know, intention is not just something you set once, you might have noticed that, you know. The intention to to act, to speak, to choose, with kindness, with with compassion, with non clinging. You know, it's a commitment that requires an ongoing renewal and it can only be renewed in the present. In the present moment, being aware of what is shaping our thoughts and our speech and our acts. It's a wonderful quote from Thoreau. He says, As a single footstep will not make a path on earth, so a single thought will not make a pathway in the mind. But to make a deep physical path, we walk it over and over again. To make a deep mental path, we must think over and over the kind of thoughts we wish to dominate our lives. Now, the nature of habit is that it makes us forgetful. And have you noticed it's pretty, pretty easy to be forgetful? You know, you you come to a sitting or go to a walking, you know, with the intention to be awake, to be kind. And how long does it last? You know, sometimes really, if we're honest, it's only moments before we're, we're once more, you know, lost in judgment or lost in fantasy. But we also notice, and this is the good news, we also notice how forgetfulness begins to be undone through the renewal of intention. And there's something about finding joyfulness in that renewal. we go to speak to another with the intention to be respectful and kind. And we forget. Words of blame or fear flow out. And yet we notice in the light of the renewal of our intentions and our commitment that actually they sustain just that bit more and we're less caught and we we find ourselves finding joy in that which is lovely and healing and liberating. You know, there are qualities that we long for that are lovely and beautiful and freeing and they are aspirations and values that are just too important to forget. So karma is really an ethical question. It's not an ethical judgment. And it's so important to distinguish between these two. If we take karma as an ethical judgment, we are simply lost in despair, in helplessness, in hopelessness. But karma is much more an ethical question. And this is what makes the difference between a path of cultivation and a view of fatalism. And when the Buddha speaks about this path that we're traveling on now, this is bhavana, that we usually translate as meditation. But actually it translates as to cultivate, to bring into being, to nourish, to nurture. And what is it that we are cultivating? That which is lovely, that which is not habitual, that which is healing, that which is deepening, that which is liberating. And it's so important that just as karma is a dynamic fluid process, so too is this path of cultivation. But that cultivation is led by that intentionality. And when the Buddha speaks about the intentionality that lies behind karma, it's really a short list. It's really easy to remember. Kindness, compassion, non-clinging. These are the intentionalities, the intentions that shape the words of kindness, of compassion, of patience, of the willingness to begin again, of sincerity. It's a short list. This is what guides and can shape our speech and our thoughts and our actions karma is not about, about determinism karma is about choice and not about punishment and this is what makes karma really an act of contribution rather than an act of retribution i think the question that is raised is what is we are what is it that we are choosing in any moment of our experience. You know, an awareness helps us to know this. What is it that we are choosing in any moment of experience? What is it that we are choosing that is shaping that our speech and our thoughts and our acts? Clearly to know this, we need to be awake. We need to slow these processes down. We need to cultivate that attunement inwardly that we really sense what it is that is being chosen wisely or what seems to be chosen for us. Because that is what habit does. It seems to choose for us. So we slow down these processes to know the shaping of our body, speech, mind and what, what we are choosing consciously or unconsciously then we begin to see, actually, that our speech and thoughts and acts don't need always to be determined by what has gone by, but actually can be shaped by our values, by our ethics, by the aspirations that we hold dear to us in the present. The Buddha clearly pointed out the very dynamic nature of karma and in that, really encouraged us to abandon what is unskillful in body, speech, and mind. I used this word "abandon" so many times, you know. And abandon doesn't mean about pushing away. It doesn't mean about you know suppression. It doesn't mean about avoidance. It means it was simply not going there. And the Buddha was very clear, you know, if you are practicing generosity, you are not practicing greed. You have abandoned greed. If you are practicing kindness, in that moment, you have abandoned aversion. If you are cultivating compassion, in that moment, you have abandoned harshness. If you are cultivating awareness, in that moment, you have abandoned heedlessness. Because you're not doing both at the same time. So we're very much encouraged to abandon what is unskillful in body, speech, and mind, and to cultivate that which is skillful in body, speech, and mind. What is unskillful, even unwholesome? It is thought, speech, and action, certainly from the perspective of the teaching of liberation. That which is unskillful are thoughts, speech, and actions that are really imbued with craving, with ill will, and with clinging, it's, you know, this is not rocket science. You know where that takes us. You know, spend a little time in thoughts imbued with craving, ill will, and clinging. Is it fun? <laughs> you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's painful. It, it's suffering. It, it's, it's imprisoned. He says, that which is unskillful is that which leads to the affliction of ourselves and others. So again, this is going out of the territory of good and bad and right and wrong. It is that which leads to affliction in ourselves and others that leads to confusion and agitation and that leads away from freedom, that leads to harm and to suffering. This is, so what is skillful? It's the thoughts, the words, the acts that are imbued with kindness, imbued with compassion, imbued with non-clinging. You know, kindness, compassion, non-clinging, these are not things you have if you're lucky, you know, or karmically lucky. These are things we cultivate, you know. These are alive, these are dynamic, these are capacities that we cultivate. And we cultivate that which leads to our thriving and the thriving of others. We cultivate that which leads towards Um, understanding and freedom that is of benefit to ourselves and others. What are the roots of the unskillful? Greed, hatred, delusion. The views that tell us that we live in a random universe where our acts have no consequence. What are the roots of the skillful? The very deep commitment to the ethics of non-harming, the deep commitment to kindness, to compassion, these are not prescriptions, they're not sets of rules. I think they're invitations to honestly reflect upon our thoughts, our words and acts and know that we cannot guarantee where they land. But to begin to actually discover their roots and commit ourselves to that which is healing and that which is liberating. Now, reflection takes awareness. It takes awareness to stand clearly on the road we find ourselves on. And awareness takes remembering. Awareness takes remembering our, our, in, our capacity for intentionality. And intention asks for commitment and embodiment. It's, it's never enough just to have good intentions, but to have a sense of what is being actually embodied in our thoughts, our words, and our acts. I feel as individuals really embedded... In our social structures, in our familial systems, in our world. This embodiment of skillfulness is really what allows us to find the means to be women who make a difference, you know, who can touch the world in powerful ways, who know how to say no when no is needed, who know how to point the ways to what needs to be cultivated. This is always a path of engaging with the world, not a path of divorcing ourselves from life. It's really knowing that we will awaken together. You know, that my, my freedom is very interwoven with yours. You know? My suffering is very interwoven with yours. And yet we can find that way within ourselves to actually stand on the road that we're on, but to stand on it with awareness, with responsiveness, with really a commitment to the freedom and compassion possible for us all. And I think this is where we really be, learn to be participants in the healing and the awakening of our world. I want to end with a short poem by Ajahn Sucitra. Formed and what will come to be are not our concern. We live on the edge. Our realm is the liquid mirror that invites resonance and images that do not, cannot hold, cannot be held, to float and to twitch. These are our certainties. The sun sets, di- sets disks of shade beneath our feet, the stream tracks rings around us we live within trembling circles and touch and intersect and so on it's all just circle after circle knowing this we do not fight now someone's watching they take us for advisors like the rocks and the water and the sa- and the sound that they are weaving it sounds following sounds, reflecting, reflecting our moment. Take just a moment to sit together. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Um, So now we have some time for some walking. Come back for the last group sit and also again some chanting this evening. Thank you for listening.